Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just read from your word how how your law revives the soul. I ask that you would revive each soul here, especially those who are tired or who are weak, who are discouraged, who are depressed. I pray that by the power of your word, you would bring revival to each of us. I ask that you would make us wise, Lord. We are simple. I pray that you would bring rejoicing and joy to our hearts. Lord, often we are sad and discouraged, but your word brings joy, and I ask that it would bring it right now. And I pray that it would enlighten our eyes, Lord. Often we live in darkness, and we do not know the difference between what is true and what is false, but your word can bring light to us, and I pray that it would now. And Lord, I ask that the fear of the Lord would endure in each of us forever by the power of your word. These are things that that you have said your word does, and I pray that you would do them now in me and in each of us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the new year has, has already begun, I wanted to preach a message to our church, particularly about prayer. Um, and I thought about doing a few different things, and I, I'm going to tell you about each of them, and then I'm going to tell you what I'm actually going to do. Uh, first, we are in the book of Luke, and Luke is a long book. And when you go through a long book, it's going to take us some time. We've already been in the book for probably three months or so, and we're you know, about four chapters in. Uh, so that means that sometimes when something happens over and over and over again, you maybe lose track of how often it has happened. And so one of the things that you see Jesus doing throughout the book of Luke is you see that over and over again, he very deliberately goes off by himself and he prays. And I thought it might be helpful for us as a church to see the example of Jesus in solitary prayer. And the heart of Jesus in teaching his disciples how to pray, how integral prayer was to the life and ministry of Christ, and how he taught his disciples to do what he did. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to hold the Lord Jesus up as an example, as I encourage you, and as I, I recommit to being dedicated and devoted to prayer I also thought about trying to demonstrate how prayer is important for every Christian. Some of you are are a little bit young in the faith here, and and prayer is difficult. It's difficult for people who have known the Lord for a long time. And sometimes people say that prayer is just kind of for other people. You know, we rely on the super spiritual Christians to pray for better, for worse, and some people almost don't even think that it's important in a day-to-day experience. But the New Testament shows something very different. The New Testament shows the entire church dedicated to prayer, both privately and publicly. And so I thought of passages like I just began the book of Acts as part of my reading for the new year. And you see in that time between when Jesus ascends to heaven and the the apostles are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Scripture says there's about 120 people there, a mixture of men and women. It says they were dedicated and devoted to prayer because God had promised the Holy Spirit. So they didn't just sit back and say, all right, we're waiting on the promise of God. They actively prayed about the promise. 
And they actively prayed about the things that they knew to be true from Scripture. And you see them doing things like they replace Judas because they know that the Scripture foretold that one of the disciples would turn away. And yet they also know that there need to be 12 disciples. And so they pray that the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom. And they pray and they ask the Spirit to guide them as they choose someone to replace Judas. And you see that they are doing what Jesus did in depending on the Heavenly Father in prayer as they wait for the Holy Spirit. And that's just the beginning of the book. Throughout the entire book, you see the church again and again united in prayer so that the whole body of believers, it's not that they go off by themselves and have quiet times, they do that too, but that they are united in praying so that the church has a single voice and prays together, asking God to protect them, asking God to guide them. And you see that in the book of Acts. You you see it taught in Paul's letters. He gives instructions to the church in Corinthians about how men and women are to pray together in the context of a service. You see Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy. He says he wants men everywhere to lift holy hands and to pray for kings and those in authority. And so you see that the church is united praying for itself, for the spread of the good news of Jesus. And you see that the church is united in praying for secular authorities. You know, there are so many things in our world, whether, whether it's the tsunami that happened because of a volcanic explosion in Indonesia, or, or, or whether it's the violence that we see in, in Latin America, the terrible gang violence that, that is just a curse all throughout the, the southern American continent. There are many things globally that we should pray for. As you think about our country and you think about the, the different things that are going to happen as, as our world changes in the coming generations and, and you think about the challenges of poverty and, and the racial divisions, there's so many things that we need to pray for. So I thought looking at the example of how the church prayed throughout Acts would, would perhaps be a blessing to our church and maybe help motivate us to, to again commit to being a church of prayer in 2019. Uh, but, but as I finished my devotional reading for 2018, two verses from Second Chronicles jumped out at me. And, and so as much as I wanted to do those things, this morning what I'm going to do instead is I believe something that God wants to say to our church from the book of Second Chronicles. And I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to find the, the book, it's in the beginning of the Bible. It's a larger book, so if you just start at the beginning and thumb your way through, you should be able to find First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles. And I'm going to be at the very end of the book in, in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 36. Uh, so if you find Ezra or Nehemiah, you've gone a little bit too far. And I encourage you to turn back, find Second Chronicles chapter 36. And I believe that this is a message that God would like me to bring to our church. Although it's not exactly on prayer, I believe that we need to get this right or we will not have very much to say to God at all. In fact, if we get this wrong, it will not only hinder our prayer lives, but it will, it will make it difficult for us to maintain a relationship with the Lord at all. So I'm going to read two verses, and I'll give you just a little bit of context for them, and then, and then I want to say a, a word about each of them. And I've entitled this message, Quiet Scoffing, the Passive Sin of Unbelief, and What to Do About It. Read with me from Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent 
persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. The context for these verses at the end of Second Chronicles is the decline of the nation of Judah. The nation of Israel, which is in the northern part of the kingdom, had already been carried off into exile. Judah had had a few godly kings who instituted revival, and they were faithful to the Lord. But by this time in the nation's history, they had been unfaithful for so long. Those tragic words at the end of verse 16 were true, that there was no remedy for the people any longer. The last king that would ever sit on the throne of Israel or of Judah rather was sitting on the throne at that time until King Jesus would come as the Messiah and reign forever. And so this is a very dark time in biblical history. But what you find is that as God is poised to judge his people, you see he has a heart of incredible compassion. And I want to ask you, As we think about the Bible, and as we think about the 66 books that are here, Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, and New Testament, when was the last time you thought about why God chose to speak and to inspire the Scriptures? Now, I think it's true for me. Sometimes we meditate so much on God's holiness, and I believe that's what the church needs to do. We urgently need to seriously think about God's holiness. But sometimes we think so much about God's holiness and how powerful he is that we forget his absolute love. God said to Moses in the Old Testament that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So in the Old Testament, God reveals him to be, himself to be abounding in steadfast love. John, the apostle, who was very close to Jesus, wrote twice in the book of First John that God is love. And Paul wrote the words, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we would know that God is love. Jesus tells his followers directly and bluntly. Some of you, if if you're wired a little bit like me, some of you may hear God is love and think, oh, that's wonderful. That, That probably includes the whole world except for me. It means he loves most people. I'm just not one of those people. If you are a discouraged person today, that is the way you will think. Jesus tells his followers directly and bluntly, the Father himself loves you, and he gives the reason, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you want assurance that God the Father loves you? Your whole life is going to scream at you that God does not really love you. You may be a victim of abuse. You may suffer from depression. You may have had terrible tragedies. You may have lost children. There are many reasons why you will doubt the love of God. 
But Jesus says, if you believe that he came from God, if you believe that Jesus came from God and you love him, the Father loves you. Jesus does not lie and he's not ill-informed. If you want to be guaranteed of the love of God, you believe in Jesus. You believe that he died for you, that he rose from the dead. You believe that the Father sent him and you love him with your whole heart. And Jesus' words are so profoundly comforting that you can be assured that the Father loves you. That's from John chapter 16. I, I would encourage you to write that down and go, go read it for yourself later. You have it straight from the lips of Jesus. If you believe Jesus came from God and if you love Jesus, God the Father loves you. Your whole life experience and hell itself will try to persuade you otherwise. But Jesus says, if you love me, the Father loves you. The verse that we're looking at in Second Chronicles actually says very similar things. But rather than God showing his love through Jesus Christ, in particular here, it says he is having compassion on his people by persistently sending them messengers or prophets. And you understand, prophets are people who speak for God. They hear what God says and they proclaim it to people who don't hear from God directly. And God in his compassion not only sends messengers, he persistently sends messengers. It means again and again when God sent a prophet and the people didn't listen, God did not give up. He sent more messengers. He sent people to remind Israel of his commands and the blessings that follow with obedience. And he sent people to remind them of his commands and the warnings and the dire consequences that follow when his commands are broken. God was not eager to judge his people. He's not up in heaven waiting for you to mess up so he can smack you around a little bit. He does not enjoy your suffering or anyone else's. His compassion sent word over and over and over again. And I would say to you this morning, God is doing the same thing for me and for you. You might ask, how is that possible? How is God still sending messengers? Well, I would argue in a few different ways. God's word is more prevalent today than it has ever been in human history. If you look at the, the, the Bible app, you know, the Version app, probably a lot of you already have it. It's the most popular Bible app. Just January 1st, there are a million downloads as people start plans to read the scriptures. And you don't even have to buy it. It's free. And you can have any version of the scriptures on your phone that you want. All of us have multiple copies of the Word of God in our homes. We have different translations. We have study Bibles that help us understand what it means. Many of us have, have commentaries and resources that help us dig and, and help us go deep. It is so enormously prevalent today. I believe that's a direct result of the compassion and kindness of God speaking to you and speaking to me. He wants you to hear what he says in his word. 
Not only that, if you turn on the radio, Christian radio will have half a dozen excellent preachers opening the word of God and helping you understand what it means on any given day. And if you don't like any of those, you just go online and you can find amazing pastors who love the Lord, who love the word, who will help you understand it. And they are available 24-7. You can listen online at any time of day. You can listen to our services online any time of day by going to our website. The word of God is easily heard at our time, at our place in history. But first and and most importantly, and I believe this is really critical, God raises up pastors and teachers within the local church so that each church has someone who can uniquely bring God's word, not to a faceless audience that they don't know, but to the people who are part of our fellowship. So that by the grace of God, not that I do this perfectly, pray for me so that I do it better, but God has called me to First Baptist Church of Holly so that as I know each of you, as I prepare the word of God, hopefully I can take it and apply it directly to your heart so that God in his compassion and God in his kindness and God in his love speaks to you every time you hear this word opened and taught, not in a general way, but in a particular way. I believe that's why God had me preach this message because I believe that our church needs it. So God is speaking in his same kind of tender compassion and kindness. Just like he sent messengers to ancient Judah, he is speaking to you and to I through his word. And his speaking is literally everywhere. I believe this is evidence of God's compassion on us at First Baptist Church of Holly and everywhere where the word is prevalent, that he has graciously made it possible for us to know what he is saying through his word. The question is, how well are you and I listening? How well are you and I listening? So the the first part of this is verse 15, where, where we see the compassion and kindness of God. And so the first point is God is speaking through his word. That's verse 15. But the second point is the response of the people who scoff at his word. And so read verse 16 with me again. It says, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. My greatest concern as I read these words is I believe that scoffing, not mocking so much, but scoffing is enormously prevalent, not just outside the church, but within the church. These verses from Second Chronicles are enormously important for us. And if you study carefully, you might think that I'm just taking them out of context. You know, God is writing this to, to Judah we are 21st century Americans. And so maybe, maybe I'm just pulling these verses and making them say something they don't really say to us. But here's the thing. Peter, the apostle, writing at the end of the New Testament, says that the same thing will happen to the church. That God will speak to the church and at the end of time, scoffers will come who deny that Jesus will ever return And they will teach people to mock and laugh at the word of God. Not only Peter, Paul says the time is coming 
when people will not endure sound teaching, but instead they will collect teachers that they enjoy listening to, that make them feel good about themselves. And so they will dismiss the word of God and they will silence it simply by overwhelming it and overpowering it with things that are not true. The church, right before Jesus returns, has a listening problem, just like Judah had a listening problem at the end of their history. And I believe that we as the church will be warned as we understand what happened to Judah, so that by the mercy of God, perhaps we can hear even when no one else is listening. It is good for us to see that Israel came to a place where there was no remedy. So before we come to a place where there is no remedy, we can stop and ask for the mercy of God so that we continue to listen and to hear what God says in his word. Let me, let me explain for a moment what I mean by saying that scoffing, I think, is prevalent in our church not that we openly laugh at God's word, not that we mock it by making jokes about it, but here's what I believe we do. We don't make time for his word, which is a different form of scoffing. It's a silent kind of scoffing. What it says is that the word of God is important, but it's not as important as any of the other things that we do when we fill our days. It's not as important as restful entertainment. It's not as important as having a good time with friends. It's, it's not as important as just a good night's sleep. It's, it's important, but it's not that important. That is a very Christian kind of scoffing. When you come to the end of a day and you say, you know, I just didn't have time today. I had a pastor when I was a small boy, actually, I was probably less than eight years old. He said this, and it stuck with me for my entire life. If you get to the end of a day and you've not had any time to spend in the word of God, then you do have an idol. I can't tell you what it is, but you are allowing something to crowd God out in your life. I believe that's really true. And that kind of misaligned priority comes because we have not believed what God says in his word. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Some of us, we, we do listen to the word of God, but we don't let it transform us. We smile and kind of smugly say, man, that's a message that America needs, but it's a message I've already heard, so I'm good. That's a kind of scoffing that says, once I received the word, I'm good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to continually be washed by the word, that you should never allow yourself to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that Christian, until you see Jesus face to face, you continually need the word. So you don't sit under it and think of all the people that you know who need it. You sit under it and recognize that you need it on a daily basis, on a moment by moment basis. And the best way that you get the word of God to someone else is by first receiving it for yourself. When you make the word of God precious by receiving it and believing it, that demonstrates to people more powerfully than anything else how precious the word of God is. So when you invite them, they don't feel like you're twisting their arm like they need something and you don't. They're recognizing that you believe it and that because you believe you need it, you're not proud in inviting them. 
You're just inviting them to the greatest thing that you've ever had, and you want them to share in it. Some of us scoff at the word of God by by believing that God won't really judge sin, either in ourselves or in our children or in the people around us. We don't believe that God will use preaching to save people. If we did believe that God will use preaching to save people, and the New Testament is enormously clear that that is how God works through the preaching of his word, we would invite more people on a regular basis, not just like one time a year when we do an evangelistic push, but all the time. Every Sunday is special because every Sunday we expect to hear from the word of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But we don't treat it like it's powerful. We treat it like it needs repackaging for an American delivery. We do the exact opposite of what Paul did. Paul said, I determined to do nothing but preach Christ and him crucified, not with clever words or with earthly wisdom, but just Christ but we are committed to trying to market Christ, something that is absolutely absurd. Do you know why you can't market Jesus and make him attractive? Because no matter how amazing your graphic design is, no matter how slick your slogans are, no one wants to hear your sin is leading you to hell. The American gospel says, be true to yourself and you'll find happiness. No matter who you are, if you're just true to yourself, you know, the problems are that other people won't embrace you and accept you for who you are. And if you embrace yourself, you'll, you'll be happy. That's the American false gospel. Then the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and says, if you are true to yourself, you will die and go to hell and be separated from God forever. No amount of graphic design and clever slogans will repackage that and make that acceptable to people that want to believe I just need to be true myself. It's a direct contradiction. So I believe we we need to quit trying to be clever and we need to do what Paul did and we need to magnify the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness to a dying world. When we try to make it anything else, we make it seem like we're used car salesmen selling something we're ashamed of. Although the message of the cross is foolishness to a dying world, it is also the power of God for salvation. If you really believe that the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation, you will be eager to bring unsaved people to hear the word of God preached. And it starts with recognizing with what the cross has done for you and for me in your heart. If you are full of joy because you found peace of, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be excited and eager to hear from his word again and again and again. You will have a heart that's quick to listen because you know the love of God because it has been extended to you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of love that could ever exist. We are a world that is hungry for genuine, real love. And that's been demonstrated more powerfully than anywhere else in the cross of Jesus Christ. But very often, we scoff that God would actually do what God has said he will do through the preaching of his word. And so we don't 
encourage people to attend church. We don't encourage people to listen to preaching. We look for clever little ways of packaging it and hope that something will work. When the scripture already shows us what will work. So I believe we need to repent of that kind of attitude and magnify the cross of Jesus Christ. We scoff when we diminish the importance of prayer in our lives. You know, Jesus has literally promised you and me in his word that whatever we ask in his name, he will give it to us. He says that more than once. And we hear that and we think, all right, well, it doesn't mean he's going to give us what we ask for. And there are passages, you know, James talks about when you do ask, you you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Man, I have been guilty of asking wrongly. There are lots of reasons that, that we don't get this right. But what it does is we just stop believing altogether and we don't pray. Or we say, you know, that's not really my thing. There's no such thing as a Christian that that's not really your thing. If prayer is not your thing, you can grow in prayer. You need to be like the disciples that go to Jesus and say, Lord, teach me to pray. You are lacking intimacy and fellowship with the God that made you. There is nothing greater than coming into the presence of God and enjoying his presence. Those moments are are kind of rare but you're not going to have them at all if you're not seeking him. And so we, we scoff at the clear promises of Jesus that God will bless us as we pray by simply not believing them and not praying. Here's, here's my prayer for this morning. My prayer is that God would forgive us for this attitude as a, as a church and also that God would heal us and bless us God is a God who is full of compassion and mercy. He is a God that loves to forgive. He is a God that loves to bless us. Jesus says in Luke, one of the passages where he talks about prayer, he he says, the Father loves to give you the Holy Spirit. He loves to answer your prayers by giving you more of himself. So my prayer is that we would this morning repent of unbelief and start to call on God. And here's one of the ways that I think we can grow as a church. Now, now understand if, if we do this and if we call on God and we ask God to forgive us, tomorrow morning, we're still not going to be great at praying. God does not immediately take us and perfect us in single church service. A single church service can change you for the rest of your life. It's my prayer that this one would. But tomorrow morning, you're still not going to know how to pray with power and effectiveness. So it it might seem cheesy, it might seem stupid, but this is why I bought 70 copies of this book and I put them out and I want every family to read this book. Husbands and wives, you might read it together. There, There are lots of men in particular that say, I'm not a reader. All right, fine. Ask your wife to read it to you. If she won't, call me and I will. I am really serious. Read this not just separately, but together. There are tons of people in our church who have said to me, you know what, I just can't pray in front of other people. Okay, fine. Can you pray in front of your spouse? Can you? Out loud together? Because if you can't, start there. Start there. And and I believe that this book will help you know what to say. A lot of people say, I don't know what to say. This will help with that. It is a biblical 
godly way of growing in your ability to pray. And okay, if you can pray with your spouse, then what I want to ask you to do is think about a time when you can pray with a small group of people. I'm not going to ask you to pray in front of 70, 80 people like we have on a Sunday morning. Can you pray in front of four people? And if you can do that, then start to pray in larger and larger groups. My goal for this year is I would like to see our church enormously dedicated in prayer so that it is not uncommon to see 60 or 80 people on a Wednesday night on their knees calling out to God for mercy for their neighbors, for their sons and their daughters and their grandchildren, for our church, for Holly, for the world, for Latin America. Do you know the gang violence that's happening right now south of the border? And we hear it on the news all the time because we want to try to keep immigrants out. Do you understand what it must be like to live in Mexico right now? Where if your daughter was murdered and her body was put in five different suitcases after you paid off the gang that abducted her, you have no recourse and the people who do it just go scot-free. That's what it's like living south of the border right now. We need to pray for the churches in Mexico. We need to pray for our world. But I believe because we have this heart that, that doesn't believe God really answers prayer and doesn't take his word seriously, that's, that's really hindering us in our prayers. So I'm asking for, for two things. Read that book. The second thing I want to ask you to do, when you get to chapter 7, and it's a short book with large letters, it shouldn't take that long. You should be able to do it really by the end of this week. When you get to chapter 7, Don Whitney is the, the writer. He issues a specific challenge. He issues it a couple of different times. When you get there, I want you to accept his challenge. I want you to do it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I, I want you to read the book. But I'm asking you, pay attention to chapter 7. When you get there, go, oh, this is the chapter that Pastor mentioned. Do what he asks. And parents, maybe your kids are too small to read something like this. That's fine. You read it and you put it into practice. And, and what we have done, not every night, but we have done this in our home, is I'll take one of the readings that I've done in the day and I've prayed with my kids so that they learn how to do what I'm doing by seeing me do it and doing it with me. That we learn how to pray as a family as I have put this in practice and led our family in doing it. See, do you remember what I said something at the beginning of this message? I believe God is speaking to his church today. I believe that just like in Second Chronicles, it says the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. God still has compassion on his people. God is still speaking. And, and in part, that's what this message is. Now, I'm not saying that I speak perfectly for God. I know that I make mistakes. But whenever the Bible is opened and someone reads it and explains it, God is speaking. It is your responsibility to listen and to measure whether or not I'm being faithful to it. Ultimately, your allegiance is to God who speaks through his word, not to a pastor. But this morning, I believe that Jesus is speaking to us through his word, just like he spoke to the churches in the book of Revelation. And I believe there are some things that he wants you and me to hear him say from his word. First, we need to change. We need to listen to his word. We need to pay attention to it, not just Sunday to Sunday, but we need to pay attention to it daily. Hopefully many of you have begun reading the Bible in a new way since the new year. A lot of people do that. If not, I would encourage you to be thinking through how you should be studying the Bible this year. 
Don't just do it in a way that's convenient. Show some devotion to it. Show some steadfastness. Make time to dig. Make time to study. We need to listen to his word every day. And I believe that's something that Jesus wants to say to each of you. Dig into his word. Second, we need to talk to God after we listen. We need to call on him for the life and health of our church. We need to ask God in humility to reveal our sins before we get to a place where there is no remedy. We need to ask him for his help in evangelism and in discipleship. We need to ask him for more of his Holy Spirit, that he would pour out gifts so that we would have people with every gift in the New Testament serving Jesus through our church. We need to plead with Jesus for our loved ones and our neighbors and our nation and our world. We need to learn to pray. And I want to ask each of you this morning, would you learn with me? Would you do what I've asked you to do in reading this book? Would you be more dedicated in 2019 than you were in 2018 to learning how to pray? Let's take just a moment now and pray. And and what I'd like to have happen is I would like each of you to spend a moment talking to the Lord. And if you've been guilty of scoffing at God's word, would you tell him that and admit it? He already knows but it would be appropriate and right to say, I'm sorry, to ask his forgiveness. He is full of compassion and mercy. He loves when his children call on him. And if you have confessed your sin, I want to assure you of the forgiveness that God offers all of us through the blood of Jesus. And I want to take just a moment and and I want to lead us in prayer, asking for God's blessing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we have heard your word and we have been warned. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to take it seriously. Lord, I, I ask that you would do what only you can do. That, that the, your word would go deep in each heart here, in every single person, young and old, men and women. I, I pray that you would help us to remember this, that we would never forget it, that we would be quick to listen. I pray that you would make your word abide in us so that we never forget it. Lead us in repentance and lead us in in life and in joy and in peace. And we will praise you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.